Good morning, church. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. I want to ask you this morning a question. When you think of a disaster, what comes to mind? Category 5 hurricane, leaving your parents stranded on top of their home, not sure if they're going to be able to get to safety. That's a disaster in the making. Or maybe your wife and daughter getting caught in a flash flood. And their car's rapidly filling with water and all you can do is speak encouraging words because you're not there. You're just talking with them on the cell phone. Neither one of them knows if they're going to make it to safety. That, I think, qualifies as a disaster in the making. Or maybe you're thinking of a horrible car accident. Your wife was driving and you were in the passenger seat. Someone ran a stoplight and T-boned her on the driver's side. You were able to crawl out. But when you got to her side, she's wedged in and bleeding and you can't get her out. I think that qualifies as a disaster in the making. Or maybe with the California fire still fresh on our minds, it'd be seeing your son or daughter-in-law's home caught in the path of that monster blaze. And your grandson makes the news but not in a way you ever hoped a picture of him would be shown on CBS. That's a disaster in the making. So let me ask it again. When you think of a disaster, what comes to mind? And let me add to that, if one was unfolding in front of you, what would it take to get you involved? To take action, maybe even to possibly risk your own safety for someone else's. Now, those aren't questions that I'm asking of you. I'm in a season of my own life. When I'm asking them of myself, I'm saying, Jimmy, what would it take for you to get involved in a crisis situation? What would it take for you to get involved in a disastrous situation? Would it hinge on the who? Would that be the trigger in my life? Would it be because of a family member or a close friend or a loved one? Would it hinge on maybe just simple awareness? I, I didn't know there was a disaster, but I'm aware of it now. It wouldn't matter about the who. Not the nationality, not what color, just knowing somebody was in trouble. Maybe it would hinge on schedule. What was going on at the time? What commitments I was already committed to and what time constraints I had? Maybe it would hinge on my perceived talents to be able to respond well to that disaster. Maybe it would hinge on whether the crisis was imminent right in front of me, unfolding, or maybe if I just heard it was coming or maybe it was in an area close by. I'm asking any of those questions of myself first because I wonder, what will motivate us as a church to respond to a very real and a very crisis, very present crisis <clears throat> excuse me, here in Kerrville. I have a little sinus drained, so pardon me if I have to do that a few times. What would motivate us as a church to respond to a very real and a very present crisis right here in Kerrville? A few weeks ago, we rolled out our 2020 vision for our church family. And I began to try to explain the why the motivation behind this vision for this time in our church's life. Why the intensifying of our outreach? Why the requesting of a greater involvement from you to help lead ordinary people into an extraordinary relationship with Jesus? And the answer is, there's a crisis. It's the crisis of a community growing with people, but diminishing with an influence of God in it. 
We have actually become callous to families drowning in debt. We've actually become callous to flash floods of rage filling our high schools and our highways. We've actually become callous to the growing frequency of massive killings of innocent people in schools, nightclubs, or concert venues. I don't know, maybe your preacher's just a little off his rocker, but can you see that a disaster isn't just coming, it's unfolding, it's here. Right in front of us. I'm afraid that we almost have gotten comfortable, listen to me, with disaster. And that frightens me. We've gotten used to the fact that we build more jails than we do hospitals. We've gotten used to the fact that people kill people from driving with one of these in their hands more so than alcohol or drugs in their system. We've gotten used to the fact that our people are walking away from their marriages almost like they walk away from a car they're bored with. We've gotten used to the fact that we don't have to look for pornography anymore. All you have to do is turn on one of these or a laptop and it's looking for you. But maybe the biggest disaster of all is this. We've become calloused. We've gotten used to our friends and relatives not having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Correct me if I'm wrong, but for the most part, it just doesn't even register much with us at all for someone that we know not to be a Christian. No big deal. It doesn't register in our hearts that without the guiding and sustaining presence of God in their life, they're en route to a major disaster. Not just in this life, but especially when this life is over and they have no relationship with Christ, they're really in for a disaster without rescue. So here's my purpose. I'm hoping to put together a search and rescue team that I hope we can call just simply the Kerrville Church of Christ. And maybe we're not going to wear special clothing like down here up front or special gear, but we're going to have a special interest in those who are far from God and they need rescuing. For the next three weeks, my goal is simple, but it's going to be demanding. And that is to help remove some of the callousness from our eyes and some of the callousness from our hearts to the disaster that literally is around us and we don't see it. The lostness of this generation. The growing lostness of this generation. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, I want you to remember the reason why maybe God's left you here on this planet. And that is to search out and rescue those who are lost. Why do I want you to remember that? Because, for starters, it was the central passion of our Lord that we serve. That we've just sung about, that we've just broken bread over. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10 says this. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. Little verse, huge meaning. You can't miss the defining purpose in that statement. You can't miss the foundational purpose in that statement. And if it's true, no wonder he would co-mission his followers, his disciples, to do the same thing. And he did. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, he says, I want you to go. <laughs> I don't want you to just be about gathering. I want you to go into all the world, making disciples of all the nations. You search and you do the rescuing. I came to search and rescue. You go and you search and you rescue. All of them. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching all of them to obey everything I've commanded you. Now, I want you to remember, folks, when Jesus said those words, Matthew records them at the very end of Jesus' life, and I think they probably came then. Because now they're equipped, now they've watched, now they've seen, they've, they've, they've seen modeled for them what this saving of the lost looks like. And now he can say, you need to go do this now. This is your mission of search and rescue, not mine alone. <laughs> I had to smile at one young executive that I heard about this week who took that seriously. I heard about him through a story actually told by a professional headhunter. Now, some of you may not know what a headhunter is. It's not something that takes place in Africa and it involves, you know, psh. A headhunter is someone who is seeking a specific employee in the corporate world and tries to connect them with a qualified employee. He does that for a living. Well, this one particular headhunter was saying, when I'm looking to fill important roles in corporate America, I need to just cut to the chase. And so I, I catch those who I'm interviewing off guard if I can. And I do so by getting them to talk about a favorite hobby like golf or maybe something that they watch, Home Improvement, or their favorite sitcom. I just get them relaxing, not really thinking about the interview that much. And then I ask them this question. What's your purpose in life? <laughs> he said, one guy just surprised the pants off me. I mean, I had my feet up on the desk. I was... Um, leading him through some questions, hit the question about one of his favorite sports teams, and he just, you could just see him just relax and start talking about the Celtics, and, and here we were going. And then I just interrupted, excuse me, can I interrupt you? I need to ask you a question. What's the purpose in your life? And without batting an eye, the young man said, to go to heaven and take as many people with me as possible. Now that was a member of corporate America. That's a young man who makes his living in corporate America, but his life is in Jesus Christ. Paul did the same thing. He made tents for a living. But life came because of Jesus Christ. And he's tried to say as much in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, when he says, I, I don't count my life as anything of value, nor as precious in any way except for one task, one and that is to fulfill the ministry given to me by the Lord Jesus. And that is to be a witness to the good news of God's grace. Christian sister, let me ask you, is that your purpose? Is that your most important task in your life? Can I remind you, on behalf of our Lord, it needs to be. All disciples were given the same commission. You were given the same commission. Not just Peter, Paul, James, John, Andrew, Martha. We were given that commission. To seek and save. To search and rescue those who are lost. And when the church forgets that mission, it starts looking like a lot of things Jesus never intended for us to look like. It starts looking like a hobby. It starts looking like a pastime. It starts looking like a form of entertainment. And in modern times, it even starts looking like something to shop for. Can you believe that? Jesus would say, unacceptable. Unacceptable. And I want to say this. If I haven't been as clear about this before in my six years history with you, I want to say it just as clearly. I don't think we've made a disciple of Jesus if the disciple we make doesn't help and want to make other disciples of Jesus. 
Now, you can see that that's not original with me. That was something that hit me between the eyes when I was in college and rocked my world and sent me in an entirely different direction of studying the Scriptures and living them out. And God took aim and hit me with it again a couple of weeks ago. I don't think we've made a disciple if the disciple we make doesn't want to make other disciples. One of the universal signs of a healthy creation all across the globe is simply this, the capacity to reproduce. And so if you're following Jesus Christ and you don't want to help someone else follow Jesus, I don't think you're following Jesus. Friend, Jesus didn't just seek you out to give you an upgrade in life. He sought you out to help save lives, to rescue those who are lost and save them. So for the next three weeks, I'm hoping to point us out to three simple truths in this series, hoping to help us all develop a heart for search and rescue. Here's the first point. Everyone is lost without Jesus. Now, what I just said may be the least appreciated doctrine in the entire Bible, and I'm afraid it may be one of the least preached in our entire country. Here's the irony. We love to celebrate Jesus' coming. Love it. Can you believe it was just a month and a half ago that we were singing Christmas carols and we were candlelight servicing? We love celebrating Christmas. But for some reason, we don't take too keen to articulating why He came. And why did He come? Well, we don't have to have some preacher explain it to us. The words came right out of Jesus' mouth. You heard them a few moments ago, and they bear worth repeating. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, that doesn't register with us all that much, but certainly the word lost doesn't. It's hard to find a word to fit the taste of the modern church to describe those who are separated by God, who are separated from God, who are enemies of God, who are lost from God. We talk about seekers, we talk about starters, we talk about the unchurched, we'll talk about those on a journey. And I'm not, I haven't a problem with any of those designations, but that wasn't Jesus' word. It's not the word for describing those who are separated from God and in danger of being lost forever. So I want to remind you this morning of Jesus' word and those who are without a relationship with him because it's a sobering word, lost. That is a nerve. It's the same Greek word used by the disciples of Jesus when they found themselves in the midst of a disaster in the making. They were on a boat of all places, and Jesus is asleep in the midst of a hurricane, amidst of a little mini tsunami that had broken out on the lake. And the disciples literally have to wake him up and say, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? Same Greek word that he used in, Matthew, in Luke chapter 19 about coming to seek and save those who were perishing, those who were lost. Lord, don't you care that we're lost? And of course he did. And he stilled that storm. And then he made it clear, that's my mission, guys, to seek and save the lost. It's a sobering word, but it's also a validating word. To speak of something that's lost usually is to speak of something that has value in our lives. I'm not going to bother you about a rubber band or a, or a paper clip I've lost in my life, but if I can't find it on my own at my house, my wallet's missing, or my phone's missing, or my uh, wedding ring's missing, I may be enlisting you to help me find it. You may certainly hear about it, but I may be enlisting your help to find it, because things that have value and get lost, we want to find. When we say something's lost, it usually is because we care about it. 
When we say something's lost, it's usually because it has value to us, which is why when Jesus comes and he hangs out with people who, you know, they just really do look lost. They look ungodly. And some religious folks are saying, why are you hanging out with folks like that? It's why he tells these stories. He says in Luke 15, if you had a sheep that got lost, wouldn't you leave that sheep? And go look for that sheep even if it took you all night. And if you found that sheep, you'd come back and you'd probably throw a party with all of your buddies because you'd say, isn't it great I found this sheep? And you ladies, if you lost a priceless piece of jewelry, back then it would have been a part of your dowry, would you not turn the house upside down to try and find it? And if you found that piece of jewelry or that treasure, you'd call your girlfriends together and say, hey, let's have a party tonight. Besides the bachelor song. Just joking. Gail lost her diamond about three months after we started working with the church here. We were still living in Fredericksburg, but she lost a diamond out of her wedding ring at the house there. And man, we turned that place up for several days. Upside, down, left and right. And finally she found it was, she tells me now it's probably because the diamond was so small. <laughs> but she found it right on the top of the carpet. And we had a party. Y'all weren't invited, but we had a party, all right? And you understand that, don't you? If one of your kids got lost, you'd understand it even more. And some of you have experienced a child that was lost momentarily. You just don't rest until they're back where they're supposed to be, until they're home. And when they're found, my oh my. At first you may want to wring their neck, but then you want to celebrate. Jesus told three stories like that to describe why he hangs out so much with lost people. Because search and rescue is his passion. That's his passion. And I am for one and thrilled because we are so good at getting lost, aren't we? Rick Ashley's message entitled, Who's Your One? does a great job of pointing this out. He says, some people get lost like sheep. You just kind of wander away. We get distracted easily with things like jobs and mortgages and, and kids' sports and our adult hobbies. And we just get busy with life. And before we know it, one day we wind up in a place we never intended to be and we're asking, how did I get here? So far from home. Coins don't wander away. No coins get dropped by other people. The truth is the reason some people are lost is largely, not completely, but largely due because others don't take care of them well. They've been wounded and abused by other people. People have slapped them with their hypocrisy as a Jesus admirer, not a Jesus follower. Like a dad who scolds his son for not going to church while that son knows his dad has kept a secret porn stash in his house since he was nine years old. Or a young woman who doesn't gather with the church anymore because she knows mom has always found more comfort in the bottle than she does in a Bible. Some people get lost, he says. Because some wander, some get dropped, but some just rebel. Some say, like the prodigal, life without the father would be so much more fun than here. I think I'll go find some. Church, we're really good at getting lost, aren't we? And there are all kinds of ways to get lost. But here's the good news. From some first century witnesses we know as the apostles, who wrote it down in what we know as the scriptures, God is really good at finding people. We may be really good at getting lost, but God's really good at finding people. Which leads me to the second point. 
And that is that Jesus is everybody's only hope of rescue. Peter said in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. No one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among mankind by which anybody can be saved. Now that's the gospel, but you know what the dominant gospel of America is? You know it by heart. Being good is good enough. That's the dominant gospel in our culture. Being good is good enough. Now if that's true, there's no need for Christmas. If that's true, there's no need for Easter outside of the money that it makes America. And I cannot think of a more offensive thing to say to God than this. You know, Jesus didn't really have to die. All he really needed to do was teach us to be a little nicer. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says, that is nonsense. No one is righteous, not even one. For everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God's glorious standard. You see, that's the problem. Your neighbor is not the standard of goodness. God is. And that's why Jesus had to come. That's why we celebrate Christmas and Easter because Jesus had to come up with a way to transfer to us, because we couldn't come up with it on our own, but to transfer to us his righteousness. Which is why he makes the bold claim in John 14, 6. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. Wow, that's exclusive. It is. And in our culture, that's offensive. But do you understand in most cultures and in most of church history, it's not the exclusiveness of the gospel that's the problem, that's offensive. It's the inclusiveness of the gospel. In most of church's history, including today, the thing that bothers people the most is God will accept anybody to his table through Jesus Christ. He doesn't care what your race is. He doesn't care what your economic background is. He doesn't care what your sex is. He doesn't care what you've done. What he cares about is will you accept my son as your only source of salvation? And that's still offensive to people. And it's why the offended were asking Jesus, why are you hanging around with all these lost people? To which he replied, because the God of heaven is in the search and rescue business. And I'm their only hope. Point number three that I hope we get in this series of lessons is everybody's worth finding. I hope you believe that. Friend, there are people on God's radar that are lost, even if they're not on yours. But you've never met one, and you will never meet anyone who will not have a place at his table. Because everyone's welcome. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, this is good. And this pleases God our Savior, who wants everybody to be saved. And to understand the truth. And that's good news because without Jesus, yes, we've talked about this already, we're all equally lost, but listen to me, through Jesus, we're all equally pursued. All of us. We may be really capable of getting lost, but we are more capable of our God wanting to find us. And I love that. I, scripture tells me that I didn't have to make it up. It's just right there. I want to be around you, even if you don't want to be around me. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, the Bible says this is a trustworthy saying. And everybody ought to accept that Christ came into the world to save really lost people. 
really sinful people. No, just sinful people. All of us. Romans chapter 3 and 22 says, We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everybody who believes. Everybody. No matter who we are. Man, I think a world needs to hear that again. God's willingness to save us for everybody who's lost. And oh, when he finds people, he doesn't point people and say, how did you get here? No, he embraces people and says, you know, this family hasn't been the same without you in it. So glad you are. He throws a party. He doesn't point fingers. I'm talking to some people right now that it wasn't that long ago nobody would believe that you would be a follower of Christ. And now you have a seat at the table. And what God is asking of you is, is will you find somebody to sit next to you? Because God's table always has an empty seat, doesn't it? Please don't forget how awful it was to be lost, brother. Sister, please don't forget how awful it is to be lost. And I say that because it's easy to forget how much we have been saved from. The Iditarod is a race of a thousand miles. It's a dog race. It takes place every year in Alaska from Anchorage to Nome. The contestants battle below zero temperatures, snowstorms that literally you can't see through. And they go day and night until somebody wins that amazing race. What you may not know is the origin of that race. It was 1925 and the children in Nome, Alaska were exposed to diphtheria. We don't hear about that word much anymore because we can be vaccinated for it. We just don't even think about it. But back then, there was no vaccine for the disease. There was a serum in case you happened to contract it. But the problem was the serum was in Anchorage, and it was wintertime. And there was no train that went to Nome, only as far as Ananum. Well, they put 300,000 units of serum on that train and got it to Ananum, but they still had hundreds of miles to go, and it was a horrible winter storm that they were facing. But they gathered together 20 mushers and 150 dogs, and they loaded up all that serum, and those brave people took out for Nome. And they traveled day and night for five days and arrived there just in time to administer the serum, and thousands were saved. Now today, the race doesn't have such a noble vision and not such a noble mission. Today the race is a sport. Today the race is a hobby. Today the race is just another form of entertainment. Now I'm hoping, knowing the sharp people that you are, you already know the application of that illustration to what we've shared so far. Christians still gather, and they do so as a church, but now it's just a hobby. It's a pastime. It's just another form of entertainment. As a matter of fact, in modern times, it's something that you shop around for. And again, Jesus would say, unacceptable. If that's what being a disciple of Jesus Christ has become for you, can I be as, as bold to say what I've said to myself? You need to repent. Because I've had to. I have spent way too much of my time making Christian speeches and not enough making Christians. 
2019 holds some changes for me. If rescuing the lost was a central passion of Jesus, that tells me it's got to be a central passion of mine. And so if you want to be a part of this search and rescue team, which I'm hoping will have 100% cooperation from our church, if you want to be a part of this search and rescue team, here's how you get started. For me, it started by being reminded of the mission he came here with. And I hope we've done a little bit of that today. But what I hope is also that you remember the person who brought that mission to you. Who sought you out and helped you to be found by Christ. Let's start there. So I'm going to ask you to stand. Who is largely responsible for you having a relationship with Jesus Christ? I'm going to give you a couple of seconds to just think about that. Who's responsible for seeking you out and finding you with the gospel of Christ? Now, I'm going to ask you to imagine the disaster your life might be if they hadn't. If you hadn't had Jesus Christ in your life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that a stirring begins this morning in us to remember our mission. We want to make that mission our focus as a church family. Not just something that's preached about, not just something that we talk about, but something that's a part of who we are. And Father, we want to begin by thanking you for the person that we're thinking of who made a connection with you possible. That ordinary person that led us into an extraordinary relationship with your son. And we just want to say thank you. And we don't want to take that for granted. We want to be a part of your team, your search and rescue team, to take the incredible news of the gospel to anyone who will give us just a moment to tell them what you've done in our lives. Thank you that you didn't call us to be judges. Thank you just called us to be witnesses. We can do that. But Father, some of us in here are convinced, no, not me. And I can't help convince them, God, but your spirit can. And your word can. And so would you begin a stirring in us as a church family that will leave us not the same, that will draw us into being a team that rescues, searches and rescues those who are far from you right now. That we would once again see that as your mission, that we would care about that mission, and that you would use us in that mission. For we ask us humbly in Jesus' name and everyone said. Now I'm going to be standing down front. And if this morning you've been studying with someone or loving with someone, they've brought you here before and you want to become one of those Christians, you'd like to have the forgiveness of the blood of Christ that was talked about in that Lord's Supper, washing away your sins, and you'd like to, to be immersed back here in this baptistry and having those sins washed away and his spirit moving in because you say, I want to be his follower. I want him to be my Lord. I'm going to be down here right at the front. But we're also going to have elders and shepherds that will be praying with anybody who feel like maybe you've been derailed a little bit in this mission. 
by some of the things in this world, and you want to get right with God about that. But if God's stirring you, respond.